0: Hello, my name is Justin LeClue, and today we are doing a special interview with Steven Broomer. He is an author, a teacher, and he's also started his own boutique Blu-ray label for Experimental Canadian Film. Thank you very much for joining me today, Stephen. Thank you so much for having me, Justin. Now, how did you get into experimental cinema?
1: Well, you know, it's a weird uh, long story for me. I um, I grew up in a house where we saw, you know, a lot of 1940s psychodramas like Maya Darren and, you know, Kenneth Anger and Shirley Clark movies. So I already had some exposure to all this stuff before I got to high school and then university. And it always seemed to be the kind of filmmaking that you know I wanted to do. Um, so that's something that's just kind of been with me for a long time.
0: As a teenager, if your parents are showing you this stuff and you're loving it, did you try to show your friends, people that you know?
1: Oh, yeah, sure.
0: And then they give you blank stares? Did you find your people?
1: Uh, you know, what can I tell you? I mean, when you're when you're that age, if you have a friend who's showing you, like, Un Chien Andalou and you don't get it, that's kind of on you. Um,
0: <laughs> so we have to give them contact? You're like, yeah, right, you give know, you a 30-minute introduction. Well,
1: I couldn't do that at the time, but I knew people who were into the same kinds of things I was into, be they psychodramas or Ed Wood movies.
0: And when did you decide, like, this is going to be a career? Because you've written books about, like, not difficult subjects, but ones that aren't tackled that much. Specifically, I remember coming across your book, and this is before I knew who you were, about the McMaster Film Board, which is part of a book that you wrote, Hamilton Babylon. It was in the 60s and was most famous for basically having involvement of a bunch of experimental filmmakers and one Ivan Reitman.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Ivan was there. So was Eugene Levy, uh, and it was at a campus where other people who would later become Canadian and North American comedy celebrities were uh, Dave Thomas, Martin Short. But the people who I I'm most interested in from that story are uh, are people you might not have heard of: John Hofsis Peter Rowe, mm. uh, David Martin, who who started it really to try to echo the things that they were encountering coming out of New York that were you know reaching them through, I guess, the word of mouth, youth culture, and and things like. Film Culture Magazine.
0: And what is the process of writing a book like this? Like you decide, all right, I'm going to be the McMaster Film Board guy.
1: Oh, God, I hope I'm not the McMaster Film Board <laughs> guy. I guess I am. I, I can't escape it. So, yeah, I, I mean, I did a, my undergrad degree in, in film production at York. Mm-hmm. And like so many aimless people, which I was then and still am, uh, I went straight from that into doing a, an MA kind of based in film history. Mm hmm. And this particular subject came to me in a weird way. I'd always heard the stories about it because, like, you know, if you're growing up in Canada and you see SCTV in uh, syndication, so you might encounter something like, you know, Ivan Reitman's Cannibal Girls, and you might hear something about how there had been this this criminal trial and so on. I knew little bits of that. And what I knew was like the casual account that people Mm -hmm. give. But then in the summer before I started my master's degree, I was watching television. I watched, I was watching a documentary about the Sue Rodriguez case in in, um, Victoria Mm -hmm. that John Hofsis featured in prominently because at that time in his life, he was a, he was a right to die advocate and he was essentially Sue Rodriguez's speech writer. It's a very sad documentary because by the end of it, he's he's been exiled from her campaign and sort of replaced with Sven Robinson. It's a really kind of humiliating moment for him. But anyway, I'm telling you all this because I happened to be watching it and my father was in the room and he said... Oh yeah, that's uh, that's John Hoffsis. Yeah, in the '60s, he was a uh, he was an experimental filmmaker. The Wait, fact is, were that- your
0: parents like involved in the
1: scene, and that's why they showed you well, all the stuff when you were a my, kid? My, my 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 father was a and remains a free jazz musician. Oh, so, okay. So th- that's my kind of cultural mm-hmm. connection there, I guess. It was his band that played along with Joyce Whelan's film Bill's Hat at the Cinathon in Toronto in 1967. It was the Super Americanic Ensemble. He recognized this, and I started looking into. It. I thought this guy's a he's a right to die advocate. He to be an experimental filmmaker what did he make mm-hmm. and that led me to palace of pleasure which led me to the realization that oh this is all of these like weird myths that I've been hearing my whole life about Ivan Reitman. And then I got to know the real story, mostly from reading like McMaster student newspapers from the 1960s, which were like, uh, it was like reading the inside of these people's brains. So it was like uh, all
0: the president's men. You're just like sitting in the university library,
1: like going through microfilm. Why, thank you. It was like all the president's <laughs> men. It was a pretty exciting uh, project. But to me, it really was just like a project. It mm-hmm. was like this was my master's thesis. I'm learning research skills. At the time, I'd made a couple of documentary films films. I just saw it as an extension of my documentary practice. Through the course of that, I started to preserve films because there were all of these student films. Some of them were held in the National Archives, but many of them were in people's you know, attics. Mm-hmm. And no one was collecting them. No one even seemed to recognize the common thread that they were all made on this university campus between 1966 and 1972 or so. By the end of that project, I had this book manuscript, um, which took another five or six years for me to to get out but i also had like 26 or 27 restored films Mm -hmm, because you had to see them if you were going to write about yeah so the palace of pleasure was like the flagship item there to my mind and and i still believe this that it's it's the strongest of all those 27 films
0: and what's fascinating about palace of pleasure is that when you say that's the flagship that makes it sound like well everybody knows that one nobody knows no nobody knows
1: palace of pleasure no i know it's uh it is a deeply obscure film since i first restored it in 2008, it's shown, you know, I mean, a couple of dozen times, mostly on university campuses, almost exclusively in in North America. A couple of times in South America, but it really hasn't been seen very much because I'm distributing it myself.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, no one, no one has seen it because no one has put it out there until you have. But before we get to that, we're in academia now. I mean, this is where you live as well. Uh, you teach classes uh, currently at University of Toronto. Uh,
1: the class I've been doing the last two years is called Cine Praxis. Great name. Thank you. It's a course in video essaying, Mm -hmm. which is also something that I started doing during the pandemic. My uh, assertion of my uh, teaching ability, as it were, uh, with this series I do called Art and Trash.
0: And so you write a book like Hamilton Babylon and you're like, all right, now it goes into the world. The millions start
1: rolling in, right? Oh, yeah. I was expecting so much. No, (laughs) academic publishing is got to love it. Yeah. Uh, to do it.
0: I mean, someone's raking in some dough because I believe this one, I think it retails for like $80. Oh,
1: yeah, it does. And, and don't ask me what I make <laughs> on each sale because uh, I haven't received a royalty check in a
0: couple of years. Not even probably a dime. Yeah, it's,
1: <laughs> no, it, it it's very much uh, to the benefit of the press. And, you know, I think that's great if only they had put it out in paperback. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: <laughs> what I will say is that if you come to Toronto, haunt the used bookstores. Perhaps you will come across a copy of Hamilton Babylon. Did Did you find that in a used bookstore? Not this one. Oh, I'm so sorry. (laughs) Uh, I think the price wasn't too bad. I think I bought it at TIFF. Sure. bookstore and it wasn't $80 oh, when I bought well, it. Oh yeah. well what a
1: relief. Did, I always oh, feel like I have to apologize to people <laughs> when I, f- I see copies of it out in the wild.
0: I mean you come in here Mr. Moneybags yeah, got the, a monocle on. Mr.
1: Moneybags yeah I know of, of course. <laughs>
0: but you also uh, self publish your own books. And another I the one that you have Codes for North Foundations of the Canadian Avant-Garde film.
1: Did this follow directly from Hamilton Babylon? In some ways it does. In other ways it doesn't. Hamilton Babylon deals with like not just weird experimental films and student films. It also deals with like the concurrent birth of two things mm-hmm. which is the canadian independent cfdc feature film which is kind Telefilm of where, now well yeah exactly it's where it's where people like ivan and cronenberg and so on are heading in that book and on the other hand like the student film movement the possibility of a avant-garde film in canada starting from somewhere other than new york which is where you know, mm-hmm. mike snow and joyce wheland were doing it in some ways this is one of the branches of that cfmdc published it for their 50th anniversary it's a kind of three-way portrait of mike snow joyce Wheeland, and jack chambers mm-hmm. it's a comprehensive study of joyce and uh, and chambers mike of course continued to make films for a long long time it really is like a, it has a temporal framework so it starts in the 50s and it ends in like 1971 it goes up to la region central have
0: you heard if anybody's using this as just like a school textbook yet because this is like a great base if you want to know like avant-garde film in Canada, like this is the one that you would hand to someone.
1: That's so kind of you to say. I, I wish I heard that more often. <laughs> I don't I don't know that it's being used in that way.
0: Because I think that like the only other one that I can think of is
1: uh... the other book I did with Mike Srid. yes there isn't there one. It has like a blue cover. Oh, Fringe Film in Canada by Mike Holbo, which is a book of interviews mm-hmm. um, and also a very good comprehensive introduction to many different bodies of work. But mm-hmm. it's also not a work with like a historical, historical bent. Yeah, you got to go to Codes for North to grab that one, and this one is easily accessible because it. I think it's self-published on Amazon, isn't it? It's available on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I try to keep the price down, especially after uh, uh, the after Hamilton what happened Bible with uh, with the first book. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I know. You know when we uh, when we did the launch at uh, TIFF, um, I'm not going to name names, but but someone did. Uh, decide to hop around and tell people don't buy the book don't buy the book it's too expensive but all the books are like that i remember when it uh, was someone who should have known better
0: <laughs> uh, the sydney, j. <laughs> yeah. uh the it, sydney j fury it was me
1: the sydney j it wasn't just the uh, book um, was published yeah then i was like <gasps> daniel daniel kramer's book. yeah daniel that's, kramer's that's a wonderful i book. love that book so much yeah. do i own a copy i don't own a I copy i got it from a library do. sorry daniel uh,
0: <laughs> toronto public library got a bunch yeah. which is where i read my copy and it's a amazing book yeah, really but it's 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 such a fascinating i mean some people could speak of it because i have no knowledge of it of like academia that they charge so much and don't pay the authors either
1: i know know. it's it's like it's a it's it's a terrible system in some ways and you know um, in some
0: ways
1: (laughs) (laughs) well what can i say i i I I, I, i'm part i'm i got one foot in one world and one and one foot in reality Uh, they're the classic like how long can we do this until we get in trouble for it well you know i think that it's just a matter of pricing for libraries Mm -hmm. oh that's uh,
0: absolutely is that who is their target of libraries even though they don't have that dual system that you see a lot with like you know renting films and things like that or owning vhs's where it's like oh this is an institution so you pay $150 the individual pays $15 exactly
1: yeah I mean I think it's just a matter of unpredictable uh, market assessments and the great thing about self-publishing books is you don't have to do that no because you're not you're not paying up front for uh you know a thousand copies of something
0: (laughs) that will then collect dust in what probably your apartment the floorboard sagging
1: (laughs) exactly exactly. or or in the case of these big academic publishers collecting dust in a warehouse I'm surprised the
0: academic (laughs) publishers haven't moved to the like self-published model for their books
1: well yeah i mean i think that if you made them all print on demand mm-hmm. it might lessen their actual marketplace which you is like that academic be like, wait libraries. A i think librarians might be like well if they're self-publishing them and we don't have to rush to buy one maybe we won't i've got my second uh, academic monograph under review right now which is a, a critical biography of of arthur lipset it's a book that i'm very proud of and, uh, you know, everyone who's involved on the production side of things, we all want to keep the costs down mm-hmm. so it can actually get out there. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm expecting it, you know, when it comes out, it'll be a paperback.
0: It's tough because like... You know, something like Codes for North, that is a, oh, I'm looking for this subject. So, is there any books on this subject? And then you come across this. Hamilton Babylon is one that you have to kind of stumble upon. Oh, hey,
1: I i got to say, I, I'm so grateful to U of T in all this, sling, the slings and arrows. I got to say, I, I, I'm so grateful to them because it's such a weird subject mm-hmm. for a press to take a risk on. You're right. Who would encounter it? It's not like you're going to see one of <laughs> these. Like, films. I'm looking
0: for one of those Hamilton Babylon <laughs> books, please. <laughs>
1: No, it's kind of excavational in a sense. You're probably not going to randomly encounter Ivan Reitman's orientation and then say, I wonder if there's a book about this. (laughs) I mean... (laughs) The probably closest you'll ever get
0: is they came from within, which yeah, is the book uh, on, on book. Canadian horror film, which has a long chop t- chapter on Ivan Reitman yeah. and the making of Cannibal Girls. So, but moving uh, over to the subject that you're here to talk about, which is that you started a Blu-ray label.
1: Well, it started me. Uh, <laughs> you <laughs> no, woke up I, one morning. I I, was I woke up one you, morning and it was do attached to me. With I couldn't do anything at all. Um, yeah, no, it's called Black Zero. It's been in progress for an embarrassing amount of time. We've been trying to get it off the ground for like uh, seven or eight years now, Mm -hmm. but a lot of things happened in those seven or eight years, including I can't blame the pandemic entirely, but we were ready to launch and then the pandemic happened.
0: Did you try to go through like an already established like boutique blu-ray label
1: no no okay. no this was always a matter of like so i started preserving films in like 2007 mm-hmm. 2008
0: and by preserving film what you mean is... i mean
1: digitally mastering mm-hmm. them generally I, you know I, there are a couple of things that i've done that have ended up back on film um that quickly became an, an unsustainable model these digital masters i would Tore them around. Mm-hmm. I if I'm if I'm going to say a festival in Peru, I'm going to to show my own films. I'll bring a couple of restorations and say, can we sh- can we see these as well? Um, so I was doing this kind of like kind of activism on behalf of all these films I'd restored. I didn't have a place to put them necessarily. You know, once in a while you'd see these restorations of experimental films that turn up on home video. Um, I think of things like the release of Curtis Harrington's films that oh, that's Mark a great Toscano, set. yeah, I really like that Curtis Harrington. Exactly, set. that Mark Toscano had helped put together, and it's like you know, Mark is doing this this amazing work at the Academy Film Archives, but how much of the amazing work he's doing ever gets out to a general audience? And I was in the same boat.
0: What is the market? Because you know this better than I do of experimental cinema. Oh, like, I don't.
1: I don't know. <laughs> but, but,
0: like, as a consumer, that like you're looking to like watch these things and have them accessible beyond you know in festivals. Like, is yeah. there an audience? for? I mean, you're about to discover this. Well, and I, I guess
1: I'll, I'll find out on Monday if, if there is or not. But I mean, I, I think there's an audience. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm certainly an audience. I sort of figure if if what I would like is a high quality home video copy of Stan Brackage's Anticipation of the Night or mm-hmm. Mike Snow's Presence or Maya Darren's films, all of which have been put out in recent years by Revoir that's the one company I know is exactly Revoir. And, and, and if I if, if I want that and they're supplying it I know there are other people out there like me who are going to want that mm-hmm. so yeah I mean I'm, I'm I'm not sure that there is a market I'm optimistic mm-hmm. that there are people who are just going to be like open-minded about the kind of stuff that we're putting out
0: because like your book on McMaster film board this is something that people don't know what these are no so you're selling it on the general concept of what it is yeah so seven eight years you're trying to figure out how am I going to do this what was the thing that finally like put your button gear that's like all right i can find a solution and do this
1: well for a long time we had planned to put them out using a kind of a third-party manufacturing setup like cd baby or something Ex- like that. exactly or uh, in our case it was uh, duplication mm-hmm. you know we got quotes from them and they do great work but at a certain point during the pandemic i realized it would actually be it was becoming increasingly affordable to just invest in a disc producer system, mm-hmm. all the printing stuff, uh, arranging that through t- through TPH and so on mm-hmm. ourselves. And it just seemed much more possible. But what really kicked me into gear about it was just fear that home video was gonna disappear overnight. Yeah, and I'd have regrets. Is- <laughs>
0: never been more popular as a collector's market than it is now. Yeah, no, in, I know. In the
1: sense of like people buying. You know, we've exhausted our depths of taste so much with everything that we can see on every streaming service on YouTube. I like to joke. It's
0: like, there's no more movies.
1: Yeah, exactly. They're all there's done. No, like, what am I going to watch for the fifth time today? Right. Mm-hmm. And um, in that sense, I think there's real value in, in being able to find new things. Even if someone's just saying, hey, here's something that you've never seen before. And, you know, we can offer it to you with... The same kind of rich context you'd expect mm-hmm. from like you know other boutique labels like vinegar syndrome or severin or gold ninja video mm-hmm. um and that to me is as a consumer that i would be attracted to that so i assume other people will be i think that
0: one of the things that does make me stop sometimes with these experimental film releases is the lack of context that yeah. you talked about is that there's sometimes a fear of like the people putting out the disc is like i don't want to put any labels on this in case that when I say like, as long as you're upfront about it, it's like, this is my opinion. I am not the universal guide of this then I think that's interesting, whether you agree or disagree. I
1: I mean, I I do agree. I think that there's probably a lot of apprehension about presenting there as being a kind of intellectual cost of admission to Mm -hmm. enjoying movies. I I mean, I think that's so silly, though, ultimately, as a consumer, because I think one can have a rich experience of something that is strange and otherworldly, like some of these films are, without all that context. Mm -hmm. To me, the context is like the icing on the cake. And you know what? It gives me something to do. (laughs) (laughs) I need that context when I see these because it goes
0: that gives me that extra push of like okay what did I see yeah and not just what did I see but like where it came from interpretations of other people especially on stuff like this that this exists in a vacuum of no one knows what these are, basically sure. other than, you know, people that are very obsessed. I'm pointing at you right now.
1: I, I'm accepting the point. I, I agree. Uh, you know, and I will say that even of the niche audience for them, there are misunderstandings about yeah. these films. And, and my, my goal here with these three, and one of the reasons why these three took me so long, they're like the three films that are like the architecture of my, of my soul for the last decade. <laughs> um, these three films have been misunderstood. Badly. And I think that what we've done here with the packages that we've put together are doing really amazing things to kind of write the record that does exist for those who really care about these films and have been working on them for years but also for a new audience that's coming to see them who will get like the right information and a lot of information Mm -hmm. if they go to looking for it you know uh, the example I'll use here we have the copy of Strange Codes in front of us Um, if you look at this collage here so in the film Arthur Lipset is wearing all these different outfits Mm -hmm. it's like a kind of a weird comedy where he's switching between different disguises if I could quote the uh, producer of the Blu-ray the funniest film the funniest the funniest film I've ever seen scene. but you know when this film has been studied by the learned people from scholarship who mm-hmm. who study these films, this one figure that I'll point I'm pointing mm-hmm. out to you, Justin, this figure with the fez hat that this disguise that Lipsit wears has often been described as a kind of. Shriner detective because he has the fez hat and he has a big magnifying glass and if one goes through his notes really carefully as I have you find it's like a mock archaeologist modeled on Heinrich Schliemann the guy who who found Troy by digging through layers of the city and destroying it so there's like an absurd comedy to this that's like that's like lost on people <laughs> no I, I I know I know it's buried it's it's yeah. like buried subtext but oh. but I mean that like the, re- the research is here you get this blu-ray yeah Ray exactly design. so this Blu-ray <laughs> great design
0: fine beautiful booklet looks amazing uh steven i was impressed because he went for the clear cases yeah
1: they're they're pretty sweet huh i mean Mm -hmm. i'm proud of how they look and i'll say about this one in particular a lot of the design work on these discs was done by my friend cam manio who's Started the company with me. He did that collage on the cover, and it's actually paper collage. Really, it's not a digital collage. That's cool. Yeah, it's it's a rather large collage too, if I remember correctly.
0: And I like the special features: newly restored
1: 5K digital master. Well, that we we scanned it to 5K. Wait, don't what,
0: often see what, 5K. What you're
1: seeing is 1080p, but it was originally 5K. Liner notes, mm, love it
0: outtakes and now this is the one i want to focus on because me and steven have talked about this strange codes a breakdown a shot analysis of the film by film preservationist
1: steven brumer what is this, Stephen? Well, oh, it sounds like total self-indulgence to me.
0: Well, so this film and many of the experimental films are a little bit on the light side in terms of, you know, length you would expect from like a, you know, you buy a Blu-ray. This one's 23 minutes.
1: What is the special feature? It's, an, it's, a, it's an 84 minute shot breakdown of every shot in the film. There's something like a hundred minutes, and something like 120 shots in the film. And I'll tell you what each and every one of them are full of in terms of stories like that one I just said about Heinrich Schliemann.
0: Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> And like, how long did that? Like, that's a documentary in in of itself, hidden in the back of this little Blu-ray.
1: You know, I mean, I, I'm writing the book, so I could mm-hmm. draw from that. So over the course of like seven years, I pulled out material over the course of a week, recorded it, cut it together.
0: Like, this is the kind of stuff that when I hear about that, I'm like, well, I gotta get this. Well, like, I, if someone I, is that obsessed with it,
1: I wish that that was the kind of thing that we could find when we go out and get Blu-ray discs of mm-hmm. Kenneth Anger films, Maya Darren films, and so on.
0: And so, uh working our way back, because this is the third yes it is on the spine what's the second one
1: so the second one is keith Locke's everything everywhere again alive
0: classic asylum style like let's piggyback on everything everywhere all at once
1: oh yeah no (laughs) that was in our mind of course that we would exploit that um the cover looks very familiar yeah oh yeah no we we got the same font no (laughs) no we have this beautiful typewritten font that mm. Keith made in the mid '70s when he made the film. Yeah, the the disc of of everything everywhere again alive. So this is a film that Keith Locke made at a commune in the early 1970s called Buck Lake, which was a kind of like a, a back to the land commune that was started by a couple of boilermakers and their friends who were artists in Toronto st- came up and started to live there on site. It's like a record over the course of one year where we go from the middle of winter to the middle of winter and we see the we see the leaves change. We see people putting together a kind of society in the middle of the wilderness and it really is a kind of a very beautiful affirmation of like what people can do outside of all of the messed up experience of living in cities at the time you know it's the on walden pond of our uh, of our releases this uh, this time out it, it's kind of like you know in some ways it's like a documentary it was always kind of condemned in its day by people who didn't get it as being too much the aesthetic of a home movie but keith does all these amazing things in it with like animated symbols on the image twisting the image around he really is like working this image over to to create something that's very intimate very personal you know again not to rely on saying this too much but it's like seeing inside his head
0: oh Uh, those (laughs) are my favorite you know what a blu-ray allows you know the consumer to do is really get into the people who made these films is that like you're talking about just the film itself is that but then you get the added context of the other stuff and you really get all of that and that's Weirdly attractive for me is like, I want to know that artist, like just the art and then the artist.
1: Oh, I'm I'm so glad to hear that. You know, one of the things that we put on the disc is uh, Cameron, who I mentioned before, and I, we went to Buck Lake mm-hmm. with Keith for a screening of the film. It was the first time they'd ever shown the film at the location where, wow. this, well, of course, they didn't have the facilities, mm-hmm. the ability to. Um, at the time i guess but they finally showed it there and 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 we got to spend some time with keith and uh and tom Bruyette, who's the founder of the of the commune and it was it was very comfortable for us because they were such generous accommodating people but it was kind of weird because we felt like we were the the mazels brothers filming someone's um (laughs) someone's family reunion um but they you know the film that resulted the documentary that resulted is about half an hour It's called return to buck lake and i think that if you watch this with an open mind and open heart, you'll feel like these people are family. That's that's what I came away from it with, mm-hmm. thinking I was there. <laughs> I mean, the
0: viewer can be there too if they just watch Return yeah. of Buck
1: Lake. And that's the thing, like you know, a film like that is so particular to a place, mm-hmm. right? And it's like, it's like incredibly particular to this particular landscape. And we'll see, you know, this same tree, the same lake, the same uh, shoreline, and for a very long time, this was something that only people in Southern Ontario ever really saw the film didn't circulate at all, uh, in any significant way. The people I know who know this film, um, Mark Hansen from Bay street knew it because he had seen it the same way I had being shown it in a classroom by someone who knew Keith. (laughs) So the film really didn't circulate. And now people can, people on the other side of the world potentially can, can buy this film and find something in that that mission, that gesture that these young people had of going out into the wilderness and trying to create some kind of alternative way of moving forward.
0: What was your decision process of selecting these like first few Blu-rays of which ones we're going to put on disc first?
1: I'm inclined to say that they're just my favorite canadian experimental films i have many so others everyone
0: from now on like the I, lesser I, films. no
1: i have i have many other favorites oh, but you've but talked about the,
0: a box set coming out I'm rubbing
1: my i hands I, I am hoping that that will come through mm-hmm. it's uh it's actually going to be three box sets uh oh, which is whew, uh
0: like the doris wishman one the akva did it'll <laughs> will they be, have magnets that you can
1: stick them together it'll, it'll be like the doris wishman wishman ones but uh you know it'll be uh let's just say um It'll be a lot like the Doors' <laughs> ones, actually. Um, yeah, <laughs> uh, but no, we have a lot of projects we'd love to do. But with these ones, there's something they have in common in terms of the the headspace they take you into. Mm-hmm. I think we haven't gotten all the way back to it yet. But Palace of Pleasure, which I talked about earlier, is like a a hypnotic experience. Mm-hmm. Strange codes and everything ever gonna live, they, they don't come right out and tell you their hypnotic experiences, but, you know, strange codes never had a reception. It never circulated at all. Mm-hmm. Like it was just considered something weird that a guy who used to have the... NFB as his distributor had made and then you know, it's screened once on the CBC and never again and I I don't think I don't know if it ever screened again in his lifetime and With Keith's film it was like a kind of midnight movie for the funnel crowd in Toronto in the 70s and 80s So you gotta explain what yeah, the was. funnel was a was an experimental film theater and and you know, they'd show movies I think sometimes they were doing it seven nights a week and Keith's film would show there regularly as a kind of midnight movie, um, and that may sound weird to us today to think like it's a kind of <laughs> documentary. It's a about kind a of a documentary about a commune, showing it at you know in the middle of the night. And it's like, no, if you watch it that way, it takes you into such a weird space, mm-hmm. uh, and it can be like very hypnotic, sort of like and wood. And I think that both Strange Codes and everything ever we're gonna have that in common with Palace of Pleasure. Is Funnel Nuts still around anymore? No, no, oh, it's okay. been it's been gone for a long time. Mike Holbum wrote a wonderful book about yes, it i think that's but, well, what I have, he compiled yeah. this book that's like um you you know this it's it's like um uh it's in, like interviews history, it's yeah. like an oral history and i i think that's a, such an interesting approach
0: i always look at that book because it has a very like weird uh, the physical matter it's made of is like hard cardboard yeah. And like the edges. <laughs> so, oh yeah that's a great book too another one that I wonder if it's still
1: accessible. I think that one I did pick up in a used bookstore, BMV. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it was published by the CFI. I think that it was kind of Mm -hmm. um, one of these things where... I don't know who was printing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, th- I think it's still around. And yeah, keep your eyes peeled at BMV. Are there any experimental film screening societies still left in Toronto? Well, there's the one that I'm involved in, which is uh, <laughs> called Ad Hoc. That, uh, that one up. Just
0: teeing yeah, it up. Thank you, you very
1: much. Yeah. No, I, well, that, well, you know, I'll ignore the others. Ad Hoc has been around since about 2016, 2017. And I don't mean to take credit for it, but it kind of originates with me and Jim Shadden, who had been um, the kind of, um, I hope he's not offended by my saying this de facto head of the Ennis Film Society Mm -hmm. he's been
0: the University of Toronto at
1: University of Toronto in the 80s and they were like an amazing society dedicated to showing experimental films and Jim and I got together and said well you know we want to do screenings a bunch of screening societies screening series in the city had declined mm-hmm. at the point in time when we started oh, i think
0: that's the best the screening society that's showing stuff that can't show anywhere else that's where
1: i want to well, But I, I think that the, the thing is that it when we started it um early monthly segments which was a screening series that used to run out of the out of the drake and the gladstone oh that's um, exactly
0: the one that i was thinking of. yeah it, it, it and had Will stopped. never went to and we're like oh it's too scary These experimental films <laughs>
1: It had stopped at that point, I think. So we started doing this as a kind of like, we didn't have a, a main base of operation mm-hmm. for a long time. We were doing this at various venues. Jim's philosophy around this, which I really take to, is that it's kind of like getting together and playing records. So it's mm-hmm. a very casual attitude towards you know what we program, but we program things that we love and, and often things that you you can't easily see or you certainly can't see with an audience very easily. Um, and at some point we ended up settling mostly into the Pix Film Gallery, which is at Dufferin and DuPont, mm-hmm. um, which is like uh it started Started by local filmmaker Maddie Piller and it's very much a like a, a space for this kind of work now it's I think the office of the Canadian Filmmakers Distribution Centre now as of our revival of it we went quiet during the pandemic and mm-hmm. we started back up again in the fall at U of T at Innes at College we've been doing shows all through the fall for, for the current season uh, we're doing a show this Friday on
0: um, yeah it'll drop before it'll then
1: it'll drop before then and then I can I can try to push people in the door of uh, films by Warren Sonbert and James Herbert Warren Sonbert was a, a kind of amazing experimental filmmaker, most active in the 70s and 80s, um, who made these kind of very beautiful diaristic films um, James Herbert was the teacher of um, The author of Dune? Well, no he was the he, he was the guy who taught uh, uh, REM in art school huh. um, and so he's best known for making REM music videos I can't remember which ones he made I think Lowe but his own experimental films are kind of amazing and very rare to see so Ooh. that's the kind of stuff that we're showing we're showing stuff mostly 16 millimeter when we can
0: My eyes lit up I was like oh boy
1: No I just a, about a month and a half ago we showed a bunch of films by Jim Day Davis, who's a pretty obscure American filmmaker who used the to be the author these, of Garfield <laughs> that, that's the joke that I always tell I yeah. have these uh, I have these strips of, um, of 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 Garfield without Garfield oh, I love it with just radiant light shining in and um, you know anyway yeah no they're they're like uh, weird light abstraction films they're incredibly beautiful and these screenings accessible to anyone oh yeah they're free and they take place um, we were trying to make it every other Friday our schedule's now a little bit uh, off from that but they're you know we're trying to do a couple a month and uh, they'll either be in the Innis 222 on the second floor of Innis College or they'll be in Town Hall so you can just look up ad hoc if like me you are an elder
0: person who is not a student never even attended University of Toronto so I'm a fraud as I walk through those halls
1: oh I, I never attended U of T either so I'm also <gasps> and you're a, fraud. a teacher too yeah, and, well, I, no. and I teach there you know let's get to the last release which is technically the first one well Palace of Pleasure like I you know like I said earlier it's kind of the first film that I ever um, got involved in restoring at the time it was really in pieces mm-hmm. um, and at the time also the filmmaker was alive
0: and How difficult was it to restore in terms of it is a dual projector film?
1: The synchronization point was always casual. Okay. Yes, that's what I mean. So one of the things that happens here is I used to feel kind of strongly about this and I feel less strongly about it now. I have about six different versions of it where the screens start just slightly apart Mm -hmm. in different arrangements. And so whenever I would show the film publicly, John Hofsis who made it, his advice to me was, oh, you know, just pick one.
0: He doesn't care, yeah. And,
1: and Well, yeah, his sense was that they, they go together, and yeah. it doesn't matter that they're perfectly in sync. And then at a certain point, I decided, you know, of these six versions, which all just trailed a little bit, and sometimes the sometimes one image seems to lead the other, et because it's basically two images next to each other. Mm-hmm. At a certain point, one of them struck me as being like, this is the one that works for me. And so instead of putting out a very complex Blu-ray disc where Did you, you have six it? different versions of it, I thought about maybe doing a, a, two versions of mm-hmm. it. But um, I went with the one that has kind of been... Going forward, the one that I've I've shown. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, this synchronization was done with with John's advice. It was also done with the advice of Rob Fothergill, who had been a um, producer of the film and, and Rob just very recently passed away. Like oh. in the, about a month ago, he had been the founder of the CFMDC of the Canadian mm-hmm. Filmmakers Distribution. They're an amazing guy, an amazing filmmaker. And Peter Rowe, who had um, who had co-directed the second part of the film, which is called Black Zero, which is also which the is name? also the name of the company that I'm Great talking name. about. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Hoffsess's philosophy of filmmaking was largely built around the idea of, of synesthetic experience, being able to look at an image and and feel yourself kind of given over to it, and, and feeling physical sensations and having your perception played with in ways that transcended just like what the eyes tell you. Mm-hmm. He was someone who was deeply devoted to post-freudian philosophy and so he had read a lot of like Wilhelm Reich and Herbert Marcuse and he had this idea that experimental film could cure us of our neuroses. It's it's a really strange belief system. It invited a lot of mockery of course at the time, but it's also a very beautiful belief system and an earnest one. And an earnest one, but one that I think became very complicated for me knowing john as i did because we were very close friends mm-hmm. and knowing his life story but no one else needed the kind of healing that he was trying to prescribe to other people as much as as he did he was a very tormented guy and i think that that some of that comes through in the film but for the most part what i think the film shows is just what a tremendously creative person he was um this is a guy who's working at a at a fairly conservative wealthy university campus that does not want him. He was a, he was a non-student who just kept hanging around after he got kicked out of the university. He kept ju- just showing up for classes. He came from the poorest of the poor in Hamilton. He was a, his mother was a cleaning lady, his father was absent. He was someone who had struggled his whole life. And what he had struggled into was like an astonishing level of articulation of deep ideas. He's the kind of guy who, he was born without an advantage, but you know what? He read Finnegan's Wake cover to cover, and he had this amazing autodidact sensibility that put people off, because it was very easy for John, being as brilliant as he was, to condescend to people, and also just to present himself as condescending to people especially in a world that was as unfriendly towards like free love and free sexuality which is very much what powers of pleasure represents it's very much about emancipation you know there are people who would look at that and roll their eyes
0: and after all of that you know Great history behind the film. We have to sell it on the thing that are going to get you know money,
1: <laughs> and you know where I'm going with yeah, this. Oh, I know where I know where Justin is going with this because as soon as I handed him a copy, he said, "Well, why doesn't it say that David Cronenberg is in a threesome right on the cover?" <laughs> Um, you know, David was, um, a student at the time at U of T. He was involved in this whole scene. He knew these guys. So David Cronenberg appears in the film. I mean, whether you want to say that he's naked or not, I think is a little yeah, much.
0: Yeah, I was going frame by frame. Today. Yeah, he's, not, he he's on, not, he's, he's not, not
1: he's not, he's not, he's not naked. No. Um, but what he is in this film, it's very strange. The film uses a pirated soundtrack, like uh, this kind of amazing mesh of the Velvet Underground and the Who and Frank Zappa and none of it licensed. Shh. Oh yeah! i <laughs> you didn't hear, it. I probably shouldn't have said that. But you know, maybe John licensed it. I don't know. Yeah, he licensed the yeah. film to me. Of course, John um, licensed it. Yeah, and, and uh, the main part of the soundtrack though is a recording of Leonard Cohen reading poems from Flowers for Hitler, which would have been like Cohen's second or third book of poetry, this incredibly powerful poem about you observing lovers wrapped in this kind of uh, ancient chamber of love. Mm -hmm. When the film came out, it was really controversial, obviously, because it has this depiction of what seems to be like a a threesome. Um, What it actually is, is some kind of an adaptation of that Cohen poem where Cronenberg becomes you mm-hmm. he's this omniscient second person and you see him he gets into bed and he's he's very tortured and like you know the the woman lying beside him who's who's making it with this other guy reaches out and touches him and and holds his hand and there's this really pained thing about it so I don't know who's watching this to get off. Um <laughs> But like they, they probably wouldn't be having a great time if that was what they set it out depends for. Depends. Well, you're right. I shouldn't be judging. It's yes. everyone's different. I get it. <laughs> uh, if what you want to see is is um, David Cronenberg get having. <laughs> having a very uncomfortable time then like that is absolutely something you can find in this film
0: (laughs) and this disc like john he didn't really make that many films
1: no he made two films that were finished and about five films that were started that (laughs) if they had been made would have been like he'd be the only person we're talking about
0: and you discuss a lot of those unmade films as well. But and the second one that was finished, unfortunately, is not available
1: in the form that John completed it. It is not. Um, so what happened with with John is that when Palace of Pleasure came out, it was kind of a success. It was a, like a regional success. It also screened. It got some awards internationally. And it, it, like it was he, was he became known to people, you know, like he. He got friendly with the Warhol crowd and he already knew people like Jonas Mika's and they were very supportive of what he was doing. And he moved to Chicago as a result. He ended really? up getting involved with the Aardvark group, which was like um, partly experimental film distribution, partly theater business. I don't remember exactly what oh, happened, but there was like, a business. it was connected to a, there was a murder that wasn't that, so that happened he had around probably had mob ties. Yeah, there was, before. there were mob ties and stuff like this. It was a pretty uncomfortable situation for him, I'm sure. But he used to run their Cinematech, which was in the same complex that David Steinberg and Second City were huh. in. So, you know, another weird connection between him and them. Um, and at some point he's trying to make films out there. The Democratic National Convention happens. It's pretty terrifying times to be in America. He Mm -hmm. ends up coming home. And by that point, the McMaster Film Board, the organization he had founded on campus to, so students could make films, had been taken over by two guys, Ivan Reitman and Dan Goldberg, mm-hmm. um, who some people may know today as the producing team behind The Hangover movies. I guess that's probably their biggest success. But, you know, Ivan, of course, have, and both of them of Ghostbusters frame and all Legal that. Legal
0: Eagles, my super ex-girlfriend, who could forget all Evolution, the classic?
1: Oh yeah, no, we can never forget Evolution.
0: I mean, we stand up and we honor it once a week weak as canadians
1: yeah no it's in fact the national anthem was changed i think to theme from evolution <laughs> orlando
0: um, jones is like not the crotch not the crotch or they, whatever he yells in that movie
1: there you go yeah the uh they had taken this organization they they had inherited it from mm-hmm. john you know all these guys got along at the time, <laughs> at, the time. at the time and you know i, they, I mean ivan and danny were very Young And they were very open minded about what film could be, but they basically wanted to make frat comedies. And you can even see that in the films that they had already made at that point. But Ivan knew John and they knew that John could generate controversy. So there was a decision made that like John wanted to make this again, dual screen erotic film. That would be an adaptation of a Victorian memoir that was notorious and notoriously banned called My Secret Life. And his proposal was to make this as a, a, a film in the kind of Warhol mode and call it The Columbus of Sex. They went out and they made it. And they kind of mobilized as a crew. They made it together in a sense, but it was very much John's film. And then they showed it on campus. I know people who were there. Um, really? Oh yeah. Bruce and Kathy Elder were there who okay. are like, Kathy is probably, the, I would hope the most celebrated experimental film librarian in, in the country. And uh, and Bruce, of course, is uh, the um, extremely esteemed filmmaker and, um, and theorist and writer who's written a, mm. a pile of books about Canadian cinema and also about like art and modern movements. Wonderful, wonderful people and they were they would have been kids like they would have been like undergrads mm-hmm. and they were there and uh, and they saw it and bruce continues to insist to this day that it was a, a masterpiece um, and who
0: else saw it the police
1: and the police saw it well you know the police only saw it because someone called them <laughs> yeah,
0: they weren't there on their own <laughs> yeah apology. no they they,
1: they they were some really uptight who calls the police like, uh, some extremely square people the kinds of people who think that movies can actually pervert a mind mm-hmm. those kinds of people so they they called the cops and and the cops seized the film, and cops and the community all seemed to think it was pretty funny stuff. And John and I from Danny ended up on trial for it. At the end of that trial, the film was banned.
0: So wait, what year is this? This, this is, is
1: 1969.
0: Porno chic hasn't come around yet.
1: This is a couple of years after the Louis Mao ruling about, porno- I know pornography when I see it. Yeah. Um, which, of course, people misremember. it. was in Louis of... Mao? It was in favor of Louis Mao. It was mm-hmm. to say this isn't pornography, because I know what pornography is when I see it, but course it's been used by conservatives ever since to say that you know anything is pornography if i say it is so the film was banned but in the meantime john had written an article about it under a pen name in variety (laughs) i know he was an amazing self-promoter and the article had gotten the attention of the producer jack harris who if people don't know he Uh, usually goes under
0: jack h harris the blob he most famously also bought dark star john carpenter's first film And he said, it's not long enough. And John Carpenter then turned around and had like 15 minutes on black screen of them snoring to get it up to feature length. And Jack Harris is like, this is not what I meant.
1: god Uh, yeah i hadn't heard that story um (laughs) well jack harris wanted to make the film he he gave an interview at the time i can't remember who to but he gave this interview where he said well i like the idea of it but the form is just awful so we need to do some things to it and you know what i read that as is i like that it's called the columbus of sex and that it has naked people in it but you know everything else about it we can get rid of so basically that's what what he did um he was mostly i think at that point negotiating with the producers who would have been danny and um and ivan New material was shot. John was involved in some of it. New material was recorded. The narration, which Rob Fothergill, who I mentioned earlier, had done. and uh, He did new recordings for them. And they ended up with this film that was, you know, debatably half shot in California, half shot in, in H- Hamilton um, called My Secret Life.
0: It's funny that they went back to the they original title. They went back title.
1: to the original title, yeah. Because, you know, it was, it's a matter of exploitation, ultimately. Like, people people knew what My Secret Life was. Columbus of Sex as a title is an allusion to Alfred Kinsey. I think Grove Press had probably just put out a version of My Secret Life for the first time, as, mm-hmm. and it had been passed around for years. You know, my favorite story about this memoir is that Harold Lloyd famously had a copy of it when it was, I think, still very much a kind of outlawed text, um, which tells you something about he's how- he's like, I want to do it, but d- with some more slap How how dirty old Harold Lloyd's sense of humor was. Yeah, I can imagine him hanging off the clock. (laughs) Um, Anyway, I... He was uh, hanging off something. He was hanging They They basically wanted to transform it into something that would please people in in, it was uh, a
0: dual screen movie so like anything they did to it would be destroying it
1: yeah and I mean it was a and they were making a single screen movie out of it of course and and it's it's really weird because they had a good exploitation model there on the basis that like Chelsea girls had since come out yeah and and that was a multi-screen yeah I mean I I don't know how well it did but I don't think that it was a money loser and unlike
0: Um, uh, my secret life Chelsea girl so sexy you go see that movie and you're like (laughs) so this version of the movie My Secret Life it sounds like oh you know Jack Harris he's a well-known producer he got this film he put it out there it's out there in a bastardized form but it's out there
1: and if I remember correctly again I haven't I haven't looked at my own book since it came out seven (laughs) years ago. But if I remember correctly, it was like the month that New York theaters went hardcore. So a film that was softcore and it was definitively, it's a very softcore Mm -hmm. film. His version of it was suddenly like kind of out of, it wasn't in vogue for for the audience he had been aiming at. So
0: this version, My Secret Life, which I believe it's listed on IMDb under the Columbus of Sex.
1: That is a weird listing. I think that Columbus of Sex just has such a weird production history and whoever put it on the IMDb decided to use the title of the film that's only been seen once.
0: And that is basically gone, though. Like the Jack Harris version, is difficult to get a hand handle on.
1: Yeah, I have a copy of it because Rob Fothergill, who had done the narration, happened to have a copy of it. Mm-hmm. He happened to have a VHS tape that I could digitize, and that's the only way that we have, I think, any material from it now. Mm-hmm. Where is the film itself? I mean, I that's I have gone. I have suspicions of where it was. I know that for a little while, and this isn't going to endear me to the Hamilton police, but uh, the Hamilton police are not endeared to me either. I Uh, I know that for a little while there were stories about the Hamilton Police Department members taking the film out of their evidence locker and showing it because it was like a good stag movie. (laughs) To see the, the local college uh, students all naked, and that those stories I've heard going as late as the '90s. So is it is it in the Hamilton Police Department lockup? I mean, you know, I did consider at one point going in deep cover and training, oh, like getting arrested or tra- coming no, a no, police tra- officer, training to be a, a, a police librarian. Why not? Um, <laughs> and they're like, "There's that film <laughs> there's, that was There's that movie. Yeah, lots of fun. Um, but no, <laughs> I I I couldn't bring myself to uh, to transform my life in that way. But you know, I I mean, I. I I trust that the film is there somewhere. It's mm-hmm. it's out there in the world somewhere, whether someone pocketed it and walked out the door with it or or not.
0: But so this is a long way to go. And I very much appreciate all that. Sure, sorry for all mind, that. Yeah. Uh, that you got the copy that Jack Harris put out. Which I do. Which is very difficult to get. And yes. you re-edited it based on information that you have to with the elements that you have reflect what John's original version would
1: be. Yeah, it's like a, a to me it's it's in it's intuitive work in some ways. Basically, what I did was I went through the Harris version and I identified sections that I felt I could fairly definitively say were from the Ham, the Hamilton footage. Yeah, like footage that was likely in the version that went to trial, mm-hmm. and then I arranged it into a, an almost chance dual screen which is very much what john's approach always was anyway now i did all this work after john passed away so yeah. I, i'll never get his opinion about it but you know people who have people who have who, who who've seen it have seen my reconstruction and, and what say that they it's, say oh that's kind of well you know remember. it's it's like it gives you a sense of mm. of what the film could have been it, it'll never be a, a like a recon a of proper not, reconstruction yeah. it's, it, i i call it a speculative reconstruction mm-hmm And that's available on... It's on the disc. It's on the disc along with... um, So on that disc, we've got uh, a commentary by me, if you haven't already heard too much of my voice. (laughs) And we have uh, a film that I made. I feel a little vain putting it on there, but I think that it has to be on there, which was a kind of spiritual sequel to... Palace of Pleasure. The weird thing about Palace of Pleasure, you know that it's in two parts. The first part's called mm-hmm. Red Path 25. The second part's called Black Zero. There was originally supposed to be a third part called Resurrection of the Body. For John, this comes out of post-Freudian philosophy, books by people like Norman O'Brown. Um, and he had ideas for it. And he also shot big sections of it in Chicago. Um, those sections don't survive. We don't know what they, what they were. After John uh, ended his life in 2015, he had asked me if I would like make a final part to the film Mm -hmm. and after he after he passed i decided i would but that it would be more like um an experimental biographical treatment of john himself in tandem with his ideas so it's a kind of a strange piece because it's modeled on palace of pleasure it certainly is chasing the same kinds of sensations some of the footage from palace of pleasure is getting digested into it and regurgitated in these really weird psychedelic ways but then it's also dealing with footage um, of John from later in his life, um, news footage and things like that, um, and pieces of a—I know this is mordantly funny, but it's also very dark—pieces of a, a how-to instructional video that he made about how to, uh, how to commit a painless suicide, um, in which he has people who are—most of them, I, I mean, I imagine were suffering from terminal illnesses or had loved ones who were suffering from terminal illnesses, modeling these systems that he built— Wow, Um, It's a very strange document. It's something he was really proud of, but it was like between 1975 when he decided he was never going to make films again and 1996 when he made this like bizarre, I'll admit bizarre self-help video, but also like perhaps a necessary self-help, an awfully necessary self-help video. Between then, he had kind of given up making films and then he made this thing and he was so proud of it. And so I felt like you know this has to be a piece that acknowledges so many aspects of his of his activism and his life, and that also follows on this idea of bodily experience that haunted him throughout. Mm-hmm. You know, so so yeah, that that piece is on there too. And it's called Resurrection of the Body.
0: So if we haven't sold it yet, you gotta get these three Blu-rays. If you're listening to this, come on. If you've made it this far like if we haven't sold it to you nothing's gonna sell it
1: to you please buy them <laughs> <laughs> please,
0: please buy them this is not like a big company or like an arm of a company it is literally
1: two people Yeah, it's one guy one guy <laughs> yeah it's me yeah, it's just you. there's a couple of people involved but i'm 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 the one on doing the hook. all the stuff I'm, I'm the one on the hook I'm, I'm the one who will put your package in the mail
0: yes which uh he's very excited to do and if you want to like You know, I think a lot of people listening to this may be a little bit, like, nervous about, like, I'm not familiar with the experimental film scene. I listen to this because I like, you know, all the other stuff that they talk about. But I think these are good introductions to that world that you guide the people in a very, you know, comprehensive without being overwhelming way. So I would definitely point to these ones if, like, get into these. They're short, they're not big commitments. And I think all three discs are also different flavors or different stylistic templates. That it's not like, ah, I did three discs of dual screen movies. It's like, no, no, no. Every single one of these are completely different and i think that's why you releasing these 3 together is a great package. I can't imagine someone going, you know, i really want Strange Codes. i don't want the other two though. <laughs> like you got to get all 3.
1: I sure hope so. Please get all 3. <laughs> um and thank you so much for what you've said Justin. I really appreciate it's that my because pleasure. you know, i i know that this kind of cinema can be incredibly um risky for people who aren't accustomed to it mm-hmm. that it, it's like you, you know, you see weird things, you know, yeah. and and you see things that that might be very off-putting to you and you know, i think everyone i know who's uh scratched the surface of like cinema history probably has some kind of a story about like oh yeah a college professor showed people this movie where a camera zooms into a photograph on a wall for 45 minutes boring exactly that's that's the that's the response but you know what the richest experiences of my life have been watching wavelength so sometimes Sometimes it's worth... How many worth, times uh, have you seen Wavelength, Steven? Uh, I wrote the this book here about... Uh, How many times have uh, you seen it? Like, yeah... Seventy, eighty times. Seventy, again. eighty times. Well, 80. I've taught it a lot. Okay, that's
0: right. Do you, so you, so you sit in the class when you have to show these movies? Of course, I do. Okay, so you're like, I'm doing it because I feel like many I love it. I, I
1: actually don't think that it's like an endurance test. I think like, it's wonderful.
0: When I was at York and I do the film class and you show Bicycle Thieves, that teacher's not sitting there watching Bicycle Thieves again. <laughs> there is no way. Well,
1: you know, I I don't sit there and watch Bicycle Thieves when I show it either. How <laughs> much like, how much how much can you watch the same narrative films over and over again? I mean, unless but wave likes it's different every time. I see something new every time.
0: There you go. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for doing this. Stephen. Thank you so much. And thanks. what's the website that people can? So go? the
1: website is blackzero.ca. Currently, it's just an information page, but as of Monday, January thirtieth, it's going to be a, a, you know, a sales portal. You know, we're shipping. Uh, you know, all over North America and internationally, yeah. and uh, and there's yeah.
0: no region codes on these discs, right? No, there's oh, a... Th- it says a. it says
1: A, but it's uh, it's all region. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right,
0: well, perfect. Consider that a marker of where it comes
1: from. <laughs>
0: I hope people will check these out. And again, thanks very much uh, for talking with me.
1: Thanks so much, Justin.